Hey, hey, this is Mark Washbourne. I am CEO of ReadyTech and welcome to the Worked Podcast, where our job is to untangle and unravel the future of work and education. So today we're going to discuss the emphasis on employability. How should we be thinking about learning and the connection to employment and work? We'll be asking some important questions. Are educators sufficiently preparing our students for the future of work? How can educators better work with industry and employers to better align outcomes for all? We hope to pull apart some areas such as experiential learning, soft skills and virtual internships. And to discuss this important topic, I'm joined by Mark Pettit, who heads up Edified, a company that consults in the higher education sector. So who is this mystery man, Mark Pettit, I speak of? Well, Mark has more than 20 years of experience at a senior level within the education sector. Mark is a regular presenter at education conferences around the world and a strong supporter of collaboration between education providers and industry. Mark, I feel compelled to ask you, how the devil are you? Very well, thank you. That's great to hear. I'm, I'm actually expecting this to be rather an edifying experience talking to you. Okay, very nice. Would that be fair? Nice choice of words, <laughs> yes. Not many people know what that means, by the way. Oh, really? So would, you always, like to, um, uh, would you like to explain? It's always edifying to let them know. <laughs> it means to be morally, spiritually or intellectually uplifted. Excellent, what a cool word. Yeah. We're already learning something. Yeah, and it sounds kind of modern, like Spotify. <laughs> it's a great choice. I'm yeah. sure you thought long and hard about it. Yeah, and it even has Ed in it twice. It's double it's, Ed. It's got, it's got everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great name. When you got the URL, you must have been super happy. Yeah, well, funnily enough, I couldn't get it at first, and I had to settle for Edified Education, which has three Eds. Right. And, it, and then it was owned by a guy called Eddie. <laughs> and, uh, I guess he had a different idea of what it means to be edified. But he, his business went bankrupt, and so right. I bought the name as soon as I found it out. Lucky you. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, look, thanks for hosting me as well. This is the first time we've done a podcast in Melbourne, your hometown. Mm-hmm. Feels very appropriate. Uh, Victoria is the education state, right? That's what they claim to be, yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, like, I think it's always really interesting when we're talking about work and education with our guests that uh, we actually start to understand a bit about your own journey uh, through education and work. So uh, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, when I went to university, um, nobody that I spoke to ever talked about getting a job. Um, It it was kind of in the middle of a recession, but that just wasn't the thing. I don't think myself or any of my fellow students made that connection that you would go to university and then the next step would be to get a job. Um, I thought I was going to university to avoid getting a job at least for three years. (laughs) And uh, what happened post-uni? So my 20s, I can say there's nothing that can go on an official CV. I kind of wandered around the world. I did all sorts of different things. I was a musician for a while. I actually fixed musical instruments when my music career was in in a low ebb. Uh, I ran a jazz club in London. I taught English in Russia. I did all sorts of things. And um, but my first proper job was at a university in Australia in the marketing, uh, international marketing office. And uh, so you obviously spent a fair number of years in that higher education environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you see were the biggest changes that happened in that time? Well, I was lucky. Within, within about a year of starting my first real job, I got a really nice job at RMIT University in the international office. I was very fortunate. I came at a time when the, when the industry was really expanding. It was kind of new. There was a kind of sense of adventure. And I got a lot of experience in a very short period of time. I call a short period of time six years. 
Um, but I, I saw a very large part of the world and I got exposure to the whole uh, international industry at that stage. So that was what I call my public service. And then for 11 years after that, I worked in a private company. When I started there, you would call it a startup now. Mm. Uh, in those days, we didn't have that word. So it was just called a new business. And so I was a director and shareholder of that business for 11 years. And we spent almost all of our clients were universities or destination uh, marketing organizations. So I spent kind of half of my career working in public institutions and half working for private companies, effectively providing services to universities. Now I've created a new company and we kind of sit in the middle between those two. It's a super interesting journey that you've been on. To go back to what you said earlier, I found that, found that really interesting point. I mean, I actually finished uni myself in 97. And, uh, and when I look back, nobody talked about getting a job at university. I think there was probably a couple of housemates. I had a housemate who was doing de dentistry. He yeah. was probably thinking about a job and a vocation. He didn't really talk about it. You know, we didn't talk about it at all. I, I don't think it was taboo necessarily, but it was just there, was, there wasn't that connection between education and work. That's changed a lot. That's right. It has changed a lot. And if you, if you go back a thousand years to whenever the first university started, which is arguably about a thousand years ago, for most of that period of a thousand years, there really hasn't been a connection. People didn't go to university in order to, to get a job. That wasn't what universities were for. They were to elevate the mind or to get some sort of exclusivity. And it's only fairly recently that they've been connected. When I say recently, in the last hundred years, when you would go to medical school or go to law school and that would lead to a profession. But it's only really, really recently that the whole talk or the conversation has changed to be specifically about employability and that very direct link drawn between universities equals job and uh, look you've spent I know you've spent a huge amount of time looking at this um, and invested a lot of uh, your own career looking at it what this whole approach to employability now like what's, what's your world view on it well it's like a hurricane I mean almost every conversation universities have with themselves and with the world is all about employability and they have are really staking them their reputations on their employability outcomes um, and so are government organizations Austrade, study perth study melbourne the big part of their strategy is connected to employability it wouldn't surprise me if education new zealand comes out with something very similar so you can't stand up against a hurricane like that that is the direction of the conversation whether it's the right way or not so students are demanding or at least they say that they're demanding employability skills and increasingly want a direct link to that. Interestingly, employers often talk not about particular skills, but about what's called soft skills. So things like team building, critical thinking. Um, am I allowed to say the word dick on this? Yeah, sure. This, this podcast, you can, you can, you can um, edit it out. I would say some, in large sense, what they're saying is how not to be a dick, like how to be a really kind of thoughtful person, how to work well with the team, how to be able to solve problems, how to be able to coordinate. Is that a catchphrase that any of the unis are using yet? Like <laughs> no, it's not. Line? This is just no? for this podcast. Right. So employers say what they want is soft skills, um, and universities pretty much don't teach them. And um, and they, they might say that, that they teach critical thinking, but I have never seen uh, a course on critical thinking or a course on teamwork or a course on how to be curious, how to find out more about your world and how to work well in an organization. So I think we're hearing this increasingly about this absolute thirst and demand for soft skills. Big question is, are they learnable? Uh, I think they really are learnable. Yes, I've certainly learned them. 
if I think about myself 20, 30 years ago, I really didn't consciously know how to find out information. I didn't consciously know. I didn't have a process for how to solve problems. I didn't have a process in my mind for how to work with a team, how to be part of a team, how to lead a team, how to not lead a team, how to kind of work inside a team. Can and they I be learned in a university things. environment? Well, or do they have see, to be learned on the job? I, I don't see why not. I think um, it is the kind of thing, skills like that, you tend to accumulate with experience, but there's no reason why universities can't build experience into their offering. Yeah, and I think that's the really key point here is that move towards experiential learning, right? Yeah, definitely. I actually, looking into this, I was uh, looking what was going on with universities and soft skills. La Trobe University actually have promoting employability skills outside of the degree-based learning. And they're actually talking about developing personal qualities, not just some of the soft skills you were talking about, critical thinking, problem solving, but personal qualities like passion and curiosity and even empathy. Mm. Well, I think they're definitely learnable. Whether a university can do it, I don't know. I suspect what they'll do is they'll find some innovators and some leaders in the field, people who are really good at it, and to be successful, and they will bring them into the fold of the university. If you can find out how you can teach me to be passionate, Mark, I'd really <laughs> appreciate that. So if some, some feedback would be really good. So what do you think caused this trend? There was clearly some sort of trend or catalyst towards this big move towards employability. You know, it's, maybe it strikes me that it was the time when we introduced debt into going to university and maybe there's more of a requirement to get a return on that investment. Yeah, I think it's partly that and it's a complex issue. So you probably can't point to one cause and you probably can't even work out exactly what the cause is. Um, I think part of it is that uh, it used to be that you just went to high school and it was an exception to go to universities. Now it's pretty much the norm. So you, in a way, you could say there's been grade inflation or qualification inflation. So what a high school qualification is now only worth a degree. A degree is now only worth what a master's was. So people are staying in education longer and more people are in education. So more people are going to make the link to employment through that education than they would have in the past. Partly that, that's my theory. And I think also once a conversation starts and it, and it gains momentum, it has its own energy as well. Potentially it's because we live in a more, even more ROI-focused capitalist society, maybe. Do you think that's part of it? Yeah, it could be that. Um, one thing that's interesting is the talk is always about employability, which is interesting because that's subtly different from employment. If you really want to, if, if the goal is to have employment, I wouldn't start with students. I'd start with industry and finding more jobs or finding you know, mm. more things for people to do. So employability is a slightly different different notion. Mm. And I think it puts it, it in the students' court to mm. improve themselves. I'm personally not comfortable really with the term employability in that I think it uh, devalues in a way what education can do. Education can really enrich your life in, in many more ways than just your propensity to earn income. So I, I'd be interested to see how long that phrase stays in the in the kind of zeitgeist. Yeah, I guess I've noticed that you are sort of questioning it. Are we on the right track here to be so focused on employability, right? Because education has much wider benefits to society that are maybe getting a little bit lost in all this. Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if there's a turnaround and, and employers start looking for philosophy graduates and music graduates. And there's a lot of uh, skills that come from just thinking about things and doing things that are not related particularly to a skill. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, it's I guess it's quite well proven and very well qualified that, you know, overall, we generally tend to have more active citizenship through education. You know, there's benefits, uh, better health outcomes and so forth. So it is much wider. You know, I, I actually, back to your point about the hurricane, I sat down with a vice chancellor of one of the prestigious Sydney universities recently. And he actually said that we feel like they're on the track to become a recruitment company. That is a vastly different world, right? Yeah, and I think that would be a shame. I, I love universities. They're kind of mad places. They have pockets of mediocrity, pockets of excellence, pockets of just sort of nothing. But there's still nothing replaces, as far as I can see, nothing replaces that experience of being three years together with people of similar minds and similar age group and going through that sometimes difficult, sometimes complex and sometimes exhilarating experience. So it is very much experiential. What a, what a university education gives you but it's only part of the puzzle of having a lifelong education yeah and i think what you say is absolutely right what education brings to to society is almost greater than what it brings to individuals let's come back to that because it's a really interesting point so i guess linked to it is of course employability is really important that undergrads are getting jobs as well and i think obviously we are hearing continuously that a lot of grads are finding it difficult to find work more are going into part-time work and, and casual work and so forth uh, how much should we be worried about that well i suppose if you're in that situation you should be very worried about it i'm not sure if it's university's responsibility to do that and i think it's something that's been foisted on them one thing that i think is really positive about the employability conversation is experiential learning i think that's really really interesting and if that leads to good employability outcomes i think that's great but i also think it's valuable in its own right when you when you do something i mean there's different ways to learn you can see something you can read something you can listen to something but nothing beats doing something. Yeah. And I'm really, really interested and excited to see the university's take on experiential learning. So as I said at the top, you worked on the Austrade report, wide-ranging report, all about innovation, employability. I guess the, one of the questions I'd really like to know is what, what were the really key findings that you found most interesting? Well, it wasn't a research piece. It was an opinion piece. So it's not like we went out and did particular research. But I think if you read the report, one thing that's really striking is the hurricane. So almost every state contributed to the report and they're doing something, not just something, but lots of things in employability. Um, and there's lots of commentators like myself who are saying lots of things about employability and lots of universities who are very interested in the topic and endlessly attending conferences and talking about it and trying to do things in that space. So probably my greatest observation is that it shows the kind of extent of the conversation. Yeah, there's heaps of experimentation going on by the sounds of it. Yeah, there's lots of companies in Australia um, trying to partner with universities. There's lots of universities uh, either doing things or talking about things. There's probably what I'd say kind of rebadging of things that happened already, um, you know, internships or partnerships with industry which have been rebadged as employability. So I think it's a pretty interesting and dynamic space at the moment having the, the deep dive into this that you had any real models or really practical examples that you saw that and you thought wow this is this is the future to be honest i don't think there's anything radical that was is new maybe an interesting thing is virtual internships there is lots of universities putting students through internships and there's private companies that do that and they're getting better at it better at scaling it and better at working with employers you wouldn't say that's a radical innovation i think um, virtual internships is really interesting it's in its infancy whether it can replicate a real internship i don't know i'm quite quite fond of the study melbourne's program they have a program it's really intensive it just runs for three weeks they have five students on each program 
they partner with someone from industry and someone and a mentor. And the reason I like it is it kind of puts the students through paces in a very real project, but for quite a short period outside of their study. So it's before term and they come out with a really rewarding experience in quite a short and compact time. And they work on real projects for a real client in industry. I think the area of internships and work placements really strikes me that we need the employers to come along for the ride. And I'd imagine also that they're really going to want to see themselves demonstrable. ROI through it. So do you feel that there is that uh, demand and that desire from employers to an industry to be involved in this experiential connection? I think you probably couldn't lump employers together in a group. There'll be, you know, everything from very small operators to huge corporates and big four and banks, etc. And they would all have different views. But there are a lot of companies trying to make it easier for them trying to prepare students better, trying to prepare employers better. It is a very difficult thing to scale because it's pretty much a one-to-one. You've got one student who goes to one employer. I don't think anybody has really cracked scaling that except through virtual internships. It would seem to me that it would be like a war for these placements, right? The universities yeah. must be it must be highly competitive. You know, they're all going to want to work with the biggest names, you know, the most innovative companies, whether it be yes. tech companies or they want to work with big four. That's I think that's well phrased. It is really notoriously difficult to get placements. And if you do, it's really hard to keep them and to keep the, the flow through of students and to reliably have a partner, especially mm. a big partner who's going to take X number of interns. I, I, I came across another really cool concept from RMIT. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've come across this one, the Global Virtual Wheel Project, and bring students from multiple countries and time zones uh, together to solve a real-life business problem uh, for a multinational client. So the first project they had involved students from RMIT Melbourne, uh, some students from Iowa in the US, and some students from Ireland. And the students basically all got involved in developing a tourism campaign for the town of Dundalk, in fact, in Ireland. Uh, that's, uh, I think that's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, that's great. And that's the, I think the, what technology adds so far, what I've seen is the ability to link people and make connections that were previously impossible and previously you had to literally be in the same room. Now you can facilitate those things. And I think where they're at their best is where they connect real people to have a real experience. And the tech is just facilitating that. Yeah. The technology isn't the thing. Mm. It's the bringing the people together in a meaningful mm. way. There is a, a bit of a concern, though, uh, Mark. I don't know if you've come across it, that uh, potentially we have this sort of rising internship culture in Australia, you know, sort of linked to a sort of problem with generational transition into work and that potentially in Australia sort of in a sort of tipping point into uh, sort of legitimizing almost worker uh, worker exploitation is potentially a risk of going really deeply down this internship path. Yeah well it'd be interesting to see where it lands I mean in the United States internships is part of the culture and it's kind of a rite of passage and it's more of a badge than the actual experience and if you if you end up working in the White House and you're just making coffee you worked in the White House so that's kind of becomes part of your personal Cultural change, yeah, right? and it becomes part of your personal brand. In Australia, we don't have that culture of internships. It's relatively new. And we also have a lot of innovators in the country trying to make that into a meaningful exchange for both parties. So I suspect it won't go down that path, but you never know. Going back to that point of what you made the point you didn't really like the word employability, but you know what does that really mean? I think one of the ways to think about this is it just goes beyond a lot of the sort of harder skills. It's so much more is about understanding and also attributes, right? So the whole notion of job readiness or employability is 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 very broad for a, for a university to cover off on. I mean, part of the reason I'm uncomfortable is that I just think it's very limiting, and there's more to education than just the metric of getting a job. And just getting a job is only the start. It's like getting married is only the start. Being married is a life. Time. It's the same with employment. Being a good 
employee or a good employer or a good worker or a good citizen and having a fulfilling and meaningful life and sharing that life in a meaningful way with the people around you to me that's important much more important than just the straight metric of employability and i think part of going to university builds your character and not just going to university but learning anything builds your character and makes you a better person and it helps those around you so i just think it's a little bit limiting yeah but the hurricane is blowing hard hurricane's blowing hard and it's a really easy one to subscribe to because it's fairly easy to work out the numbers my education costs me this my job returns me that it's a good return on investment I think the other thing that strikes me about uh, the importance of the educators working with industry is uh, that the skills themselves, the hard skills, are changing so fast. You know, I always come back to this example of cybersecurity because in our own business, you know, I can see how very fast that's moving. And uh, for education to keep up with that, you know, without really deeply engaging industry, you know, seems very challenging. Yeah, well, in a way, because of the internet and the way thing, how fast things are moving, to be really efficient, you don't necessarily need to know stuff anymore because there's always someone out there that you can network to who does know it Mm. so I think there's a whole skill to be learned in finding the right people and bringing them together in teams and finding the right resources and making them work for you to that whole notion of education and industry collaborating you know what what is what do you think that really means and what are the best examples you've seen of that well it's interesting you ask there are lots of great examples you know historically Universities have partnered really well with hospitals and medical research that's the most obvious one And, and universities have pretty good at collaboration on research not so great at collaborating in in innovation and new technologies so so while I say there's lots of great examples in a um, recent study by the OECD they found that Australia ranks 29th out of 30 countries in terms of university industry collaboration that's basically last so Australia's got a lot of headroom a lot of blue sky and a lot of uh, space to improve that seems incredibly low for, uh, you would imagine, Australia would be significantly high. What do you think is driving that? Where have we got left behind? Well, first of all, you have to ask yourself, how was the survey done? And I don't know and what questions they, they were asked. To be honest, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I can only imagine it's just the historically the way universities have operated here in comparison to other countries where the funding models are different. Still strikes me, as I said before, an area that needs a huge amount more experimentation and uh, a lot more models, a lot more thinking. Uh, also, also an area that where a lot of risk needs to be taken on in yeah. order to progress. Yeah, I totally agree. When I get a chance to talk about this to anyone who listen, I really encourage universities to open themselves up to innovators and entrepreneurs and allow themselves to become test beds for new products and to enter into really meaningful partnerships with those organizations or with those people. By meaningful, I mean they might invite a company in, let's say who's working on internships, allow them to test their product or their service with their students and their staff, allow that that, uh, to fail, allow them to try things, allow them to succeed. That's often people say, we've got to allow ourselves to fail, but you also have to allow yourself to succeed. And then do that in a way that when you build that service, you build it for the global market. What often happens with companies in universities is university says, we've got a problem, we need it solved. They put it out to tender. They hire, a, let's say, a technology company in. Technology comes in to build that particular service. And the way they are forced to build it, it means it can only ever be used for that university, even though that particular problem almost certainly will apply to every university. So I kind of encourage universities, when they get to that place, to invite that company in, allow them to test, and but build their solution for themselves in a way that could be scaled globally and sold to a global market and have some sort of meaningful piece of the action as well. They Mm. should get a reward for that. And then use that company or that partnership, put your interns into that partnership, 
put your energy into that, allow your staff to have experience through that. I think that would build a really interesting... It's like startup thinking as well. Yeah, because right? a lot of universities, most universities have a startup hub mm. and they say, well, that's the hub. Go and do your startups and we'll bring some people in and we'll try to help you. But I think it would be more interesting to have a startup culture where you try to solve your own problems because universities are huge. They have 3,000, 10,000 staff. They might have 50,000, 80,000 students. There's a world of problems to be solved in universities and almost every university will have exactly the same problems. That is a really big and, big and compelling idea. I really like that one. So... Um... Look, slight, slight segue. Australian universities, as we all know, are increasingly reliant on international students. Uh, you've been at the heart of that. Yeah. Do you think that we should be, should we be concerned? Are, are we changing the fabric of university life? Well, I'd say yes, the fabric has changed. Should we be concerned? It depends on your perspective. One perspective is it's wonderful to have students from all over the world interacting with our students and bringing in their expertise and their knowledge and their different cultures. And it's great to have their money as well because that supports our education system. That's one way to look at it. Another way is that it's a huge risk financially because global markets can be very fickle. China might decide they don't want students to come to Australia anymore or they may not recognise qualifications that would end that part of the market overnight and put Australian universities in a very difficult financial situation, probably forcing the government to fund through taxpayer funds the um, fill the gap. It's, it's uncertain. Back to the employability question, uh, mm. how do the international students look upon the employability outcomes? Well, I think you would find in different markets and in different individuals, it's a very different take. There are different sets of students. There are some students who come from very well, very wealthy, very well-educated families. They're not looking for a job. For them, a university is a rite of passage, and they're just looking for a prestigious institution, and they will go back, the best one that they can get, a, and they get into, and they will go back and work in the family business. So employability is not really a thing. Uh, there'll be plenty of students who equate uh, ranking of a university with employability. So rankings is the only thing that is particularly interesting. Then there'll be some students who just equate the employability statistics with employability. Uh, so they'll look more towards the... Average salary as you come out average of Average salary, well, right? yep. yes. And then there'll be students who they have to take the best that they can get into and the best that they can afford. And they may or may not be thinking about employability. So I think every... Every student's going to have a little different take on it and their parents may have a different take from the students. I don't think you can sum it up and say international students think this or even Chinese think students think this yeah, or Indian sure. students. It's a That's really interesting. mixed bag. Yeah. As you know, Mark, I've got a passion for VET, vocational education and mm. training, the other side of the coin really of uh, tertiary education. I guess in itself it is the uh, one of the ultimate experiential learning models of on-the-job learning. Industries uh, have some difficulties or the sector has, but also I think, as we all know, massive opportunities in the skill, skilled economy and around areas such as uh, life lifelong learning and micro-credentialing. So uh, what do you think the vocational education and training sector needs to do to stay relevant? Well, the whole conversation about employability and universities is really dangerous for VET because that was always their space. Their space was go and do an apprenticeship or go and do a diploma and that leads to a job. And university is kind of for smart people to go and do something and then I don't know, then they end up somewhere else. So I think VET has lost a huge amount of sort of psychological space or perceptual space and being kind of squashed into a smaller corner because universities take a huge number of students, like the proportion of students who go to university is huge compared to what it was 20, 30 years ago. Um, so they're in a difficult spot. However, I think they still have huge opportunities and potential 
to modernize the way they present themselves and modernize what they offer to students because students increasingly, especially ones who've already graduated or are never going to university, are really, really looking for discrete uh, short courses to upgrade their skills. I know you've spent a lot of time working in, in the marketing area uh, and student acquisition and so forth for the universities. What do you think that the VET providers can learn from that? Like you're running a TAFE, you know, what do you, what do, you do to sort of reposition in this new world? Two of the jobs I worked in in universities were in multi-sector institutions, so RMIT, so I worked a lot with the TAFE sector there, and in Swinburne they have a TAFE sector as well. So it, when we were pitching TAFE to international students, it was very much seen as a pathway into university. So it's effectively like a pathway college and that's how it's been presented so to take a different approach in the international market will take quite some doing i think probably the best way to go is to try and reposition on a on a sort of nimble skills agile um sort of fast-paced kind of learning mm -hmm. yeah bite-sized fast-paced learning that gives you really meaningful outcomes in a short time mm. i think that's the probably the best model. It is a tricky one though because universities will take that model as well and apply it to themselves. I guess they have still have that huge advantage of the prestige and the recognition that comes with the university. It's hard to break down. Yeah, universities have phenomenal brands. I mean just the word university has has a huge brand and and universities that are fortunate enough to have high rankings, they they that kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Top students want to go to top-ranked universities and a university that takes in top-ranked students is going to have to try really hard to turn them into low-ranked students whatever they do in three years so they're still going to turn out top students mm. and that creates its own gravity and its own kind of magnetism mm. further to that in terms of the kind of disruption of models big tech has disrupted so many industries do you see it disrupting the university and will, will there still be uh, will universities still carry the same weight in in 20 years uh, as opposed to you know could we uh, will be doing uh, you know global education programs with the big tech providers that's a great question and um, it's a really difficult one to predict but I am going to give have it a try a, I am going to give Let's it a shot a <laughs> and I would I would equate universities the way they've evolved much like the main street of a small town or a suburb or main street of a town so when you go to the main street of a town you have a post office you have a supermarket you have a little you have a hairdresser you have a bank you have all of these things and universities have those things they have a faculty of engineering a faculty of law and medicine blah, blah blah most universities have pretty much the same faculties there are very few specialist universities. In fact, in Australia, there are no specialist universities. So in a small town with lots of little shops, that that has evolved because the community around it, that's what they demand. Like universities in Australia have evolved from the community around them who need law and they need medicine, they need this and that. So post office might die in a town, but the town won't die. The, the infrastructure of the street and where people go won't change. So I suspect universities will stay and the, the disruption will come, if it comes from big tech companies, they'll work inside universities. I'm really glad to hear that because I'm like you, I love universities too. Yeah. So I want them to be around. I like the optimistic view. It's really hard to see how a technology company could replicate the, the campus experience. Yeah. Now, I think there would be changes. Maybe disruption is too big a word. It wouldn't surprise me if we see a lot more student mobility. They might do one semester here, one semester there finish it somewhere else or that universities start buying in the services of big technology companies and branding it themselves it actually reminds me of a conversation we had about on the last podcast about remote work and that 
actually we've really found that ultimately people actually really crave the human connection which i think universities give yeah absolutely lifelong learning we know is a passion of yours yeah do you think it's you you clearly think it's becoming more important than ever yeah i do i think learning something new is a really human thrill i'm not going to say there's nothing better but something very satisfying is to not be able to do something or not understand something and work a little bit hard and then come out of it and you you can do it and it feels really satisfying and there's sort of there seems to be no end it seems to be infinite capacity if humans only limited by your lifetime to kind of learn new things and and um, it's very stimulating for people around you as well. So I think lifelong long learning, not just for vocation, but for your life, is really, really empowering. That's such a beautiful way of exp- expressing it. So you're, you're doing a ton of work with universities now under Edified around areas like student experience and student success. We do have a lot of listeners that are running education providers, both VET as well as uh, higher ed. So uh, what can you share there? What can educators be doing better? Whenever we do a project... We always try to look at it. Obviously, we're working for a client that might be a university or might be a service provider at the university. But we always try to look at it from the student's perspective, even though the client is the university, and see things through their eyes and what their experience would be and what their aspirations are and what their journey is going to be like. And I think if we, if we always look from those eyes, it'll be much more meaningful for the client and they'll be able to, we'll be able to help them come up with solutions that will work for the long term. Student expectations, of course, must be changing. What are you seeing there? You know, universities and vet providers, any education provider, you always have an interesting relationship with students, particularly now that they are kind of a customer. So they're paying for a service, but at the same time, as long as universities remain as the examiners as well as the teachers, they also are not their they're not just your friend they are a guide and learning things can be tough and sometimes teachers and lecturers have to be tough on students in order for them to do well so the experience is not like buying a car where everything has to be great or going on a plane where everything has to be great not everything is great about learning things it it can get really tough doing a degree is hard work and so your relationship your experience is not you can't say it's always positive during that journey the three-year journey or two-year journey it's not always a positive experience. I think what matters is that students come out feeling that it was a positive experience and that they, they look back on it with really fond memories. So I actually, I'm on a course right now. Is it uh, tough? It is tough, actually. I'm being definitely being tested and pushed and challenged. Uh, but I'm definitely getting that. I'm getting that real sense of, uh, of growth and, and fulfillment. It's impacting on my weekends for sure mm. uh, but uh, also it genuinely is the uh, the networking and the collaboration uh, that we're having in the classroom uh, you know is, uh, is is really is a deeply beneficial experience yeah and I think that's an interesting trend that you just touched on which I'd call peer learning or social learning um, it's been going on for a long time like part of most MBAs is people always say I learned more from the other students than I did from my lecturers. So it's nothing new, but I think there's an, there's a kind of increased sense in the market that there's some real possibilities for technology Absolutely. to help peer learning really succeed. And I'm, I'm watching that space with a lot of interest because I think that's really, really exciting. Getting towards the end, in terms of further education or tertiary education, what other big trends should we be looking out for? Well, I think social learning is one. Uh, experiential learning is another. I think universities, I hope, partnering with innovators and entrepreneurs and um, trying to solve global problems within education, within their own um, within their own campuses and using the resources they have to work together. I think that would be a really interesting space. Um, lifelong learning, 
is I don't think uh, I've seen a university really crack that. Um, I was listening to a talk by um, Rob Lawrence, who's a really well-known researcher in this area recently, and he was suggesting to universities that they 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 take up a membership model, yeah, which is where or a subscription, a, a maybe, subscription yeah. model, yeah, yeah, where a student kind of becomes a lifetime member and a university becomes a lifetime partner in providing them with education. I think that's going to be interesting. This is a compelling business model. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's since you know a lot of people are seeing the value of lifelong learning. I don't see why it can't be really valuable for yeah. students. Any as well. other big predictions? Let me think for a minute. <laughs> you take a sip. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Mark, thank you so much for your insights. I love to hear your passion for education, particularly lifelong learning. Such a fascinating topic. It's, it actually genuinely was an edifying experience. Oh, great. Thanks, Mark. And thank you to the listeners. I uh, really hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please keep tuning in to Worked. Mm-hmm.